RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. We've been hearing a lot recently, particularly about a falling birth rate, but this is nothing new. And this suddenly hit me like a ton of bricks watching Birth Gap, part one of uh, three parts, a documentary series, Birth Gap by Stephen Shaw. And I'm so interested by it. I thought I would like to talk to the man behind the series himself. So he joins us on Reality Check Radio to talk about birth gaps. Stephen Shaw, welcome to our radio station. Thanks for making time for us from Tokyo, I believe. Yes, Tokyo. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I found, and I've only watched part one, I found, well, it's jaw-dropping, actually. It hits you, like I said in the intro there, it hits you like a ton of bricks because suddenly you realize how huge this problem is and what it means. Crikey. So where to start? What got you interested in in making this program and the whole question of falling birth rates, crashing birth rates, why it's happening, where it's happening? Where do you want to start? Well, you use the term jaw-dropping. Uh, that's why I made the documentary. Uh, back in 2016, I happened to be looking at some birth rate data. And prior to that, I was not a filmmaker. I had some interest in demography, um, but my focus was really um, much more on data analytics for various industries around the world, predicting future trends. That's why I do my day job. Um, I've done that for 20 years. And not once before 2016 had I or any of my clients or the team around me in any way factored in population changes into future predictions about consumer behavior, about the future of the planet, because there's too many of us. We're growing. That's what happens, right? That's, that's the, the, the story of planet Earth for the last couple of centuries or more. But then I saw birth rate data for Europe. Of course, we know, or I knew, I think many of us knew Japan had kind of this quirky side to it, low birth rates for some reason. That, that seems to be pretty well known. But when I saw the same trend happening in Italy and Germany and Spain, Portugal, Austria, Switzerland, all having started at the same time 50 years ago, and I didn't know about it. And then when you factor in the fact that in Italy, for example, today, you have around 900,000 people aged 50. And only 400,000 births, less than half. When you realize the implications of that scale of change, it, it was jaw-dropping. It was frightening. And I felt I had, a, I had to research this story and I had to tell this story. What is it about 50 years ago? Yes. So that was the, the – what I couldn't understand was – why in 1974, to be specific, countries across different regions of the world at the same moment in time had a sudden fall in birth rates? So if you take, for example, Japan and Italy, Germany too, um, why did these diverse cultures, why did they experience this? And if you watch the documentary, it unfolds. I mean, literally, you're following, following my story, researching this topic. What happened in 1973, um, for those of us who vaguely remember my case, there was an oil shock. And it turns out that nine months after the oil shock, 
that there was this huge shift in birth rates that has not changed since that time in those countries. And then I tracked further other shocks around the world, like the mortgage crisis back in 07, 08, where we saw a sudden change in birth rates in countries like the US and Malaysia and the Netherlands and Ireland and New Zealand. Um, so what appears to be happening is that certain financial crises trigger a change in the societal norms of, of birth rates. And that opens up many other questions, why that happens and why it never reverts to what it was before. Yeah, that's. I'm curious about that because, I mean, I've had a family, three kids, and I always thought that unless I was on the bones of my ass, um, I was still probably going to have a family. That wasn't enough to stop me doing that because there's kind of a natural urge to want to do that. Now that might not be there for everybody, but I always up till now always thought that that would always override any, you know, local yeah. or okay. Global financial issues um, uh, along oil shocks and mortgage crises, et cetera, that humans would still do what they've always done because there've been plenty of times of adversity before. Right. And no yeah. one stopped breeding. So, yeah. So that they were enough to override those sort of natural inclinations. So you're right. So, you know, why would that be the case? Um, I also assumed at that time that for most of us, there's a natural desire to children. Um, and I will call out for one moment. I always, it's important that I say this. I support those people who simply do not want to children 100%. Yeah. It, it, it's having children is a personal choice. So having said that, why was this change 50 years ago in the case of Japan and much of Europe and more recently in the case of the US and now New Zealand? And it, it, it turns out to be something that isn't really talked a lot about. It's to do with childlessness. What happens is that by deferring the timing of when we become parents, the chance of becoming a parent decreases quite rapidly. And I don't think we're aware enough of how short the fertility cycle is for women, but in effect, it's, it's men too. Um, and, you know, if you look at the data, what simply happened was the increase in childlessness rocketed right after the oil shock and after the mortgage crisis. But yet in the countries we're talking about, the family structure didn't change at all. So if you take Japan, for example, in 1973, 6% of mothers were having four or more children, 6%. Today, it's exactly the same. And the proportion having one, two, three is exactly the same. And that pattern is global um, in terms of the developed world and other, you know, the slightly less developing world, it, we're seeing the same trends everywhere that mothers have generally uh, the size of families they want to have financial crisis or not, baby incentive or not. It doesn't change the family structure. What does change is the proportion of people having no children. And what that turns out to show is that 80% of people without children 
had intended to have a family. Hey. And that's the track. Had yes. Wow. Yeah. So four out of five, and some countries are still going through the transition. So that would be the US and, and New Zealand too, because this is quite a recent phenomenon. So you're not going to see that percentage there quite yet. In other words, there's a lot of people in the US and New Zealand still hoping to become parents, but they're probably getting, you know, to late 30s into their 40s. And my heart goes out to those people because it gets harder and harder. And I'm sure many people will be listening to this. And um, I, 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 I empathize. The documentary, I think, touches this subject by you know covering the support groups that are available for people who end up. I mean, the term used is grieving, grieving for the families yeah. they never had. It's so sad, isn't it, actually? It's sad. It, it's sad, but it's also hopeful for the future. Because it's not that, to your point, it's not that our species have suddenly decided we don't want children. We do. It's a case of trying to figure out how we better enable, for the younger people today, how we better enable people who want their children to have the families that they, they, they intend to have. So, so what is the delaying factor then? Is it economic? Yeah. Primarily? So it, it, it is triggered by economics, but when the economic situation recovers, childlessness remains as high as ever. So, you know, you take well, Italy, uh, for example, again, back to 73, childlessness there was, I believe it was 3%, uh, even less in Japan, which was around 4%. But within three, four years, it had rocketed to over 20%. It went straight up to 30 35%. And today in Italy, childlessness is over 40%. So, the oil shock didn't cause the crisis. It simply triggered a change in the societal norms. So what happens, or what did happen, I believe people uh, pursued other things, pursued careers, um, and this idea of deferring the timing of becoming a parent became a, just the norm. I, I guess in, in, in a simple terms, if you're working in a, a company and your your boss hasn't had a family yet and you're boss's boss hasn't had a family yet and you're, you're you're maybe 28 29 thinking well my boss's boss is like 34 35 i'm not going to kind of i'm going to follow the pattern that, that you know that i see around me in my friend group in my you know in my, uh, in, in my corporate world or and this deferral uh, it just becomes natural i think and for some strange reason if you search for data on fertility statistics. I mean, it's it's out there, but we just don't talk about it. We don't know about it. Women don't know how quickly the fertility window shrinks. And, and let me just explain that. Fertility challenges themselves are actually not the biggest factor. They're, they are a big factor, but the biggest factor is people not finding a partner at that right time. So simply not having a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, or just as likely having broken up at the wrong time or divorced at the wrong time. So you get to 32, 33, you're starting to think about it. Maybe your partner's not ready yet. So maybe he or she's saying, well, 34, 35, and then there's a breakup. Or then you decide, let's try and have a baby. And then actually 35, the chances you know, of getting pregnant, carrying a baby to term, um, you know, those are... Of course, many people do, and that's wonderful. Many people uh, are able to give birth in the late 30s into their 40s. Those cases exist. 
but the numbers are going against people. And if I could, Paul, just share one piece of data, perhaps this is uh, the most poignant way to express this. In every country I've looked at, bar one, uh, the probability of becoming a mother, we've data for women on this, but men, similar age, the probability of a woman who has not had a child by age 30 ever becoming a mother is 50-50. There's only a half chance that a 30-year-old woman without children will ever become a mother. Hmm. And most often it's because they will not have a partner at the time that they are able to have children. And I, I think that's shocked a lot of people. I'm thinking traditional values. <laughs> I mean, it's old-fashioned, but that, that kind of locked in the... Um, you know, the, the playing field for having a family, didn't it? I mean, it created yeah. the right space to do that. Yeah. At traditional values. I, 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 the thing I think. For want of a better terms. Yeah, no, no, sure. Sure. Yeah. I think it's a better term. Um, it is certain that in societies where deferred parenthood becomes a norm, there will be no future. Uh, quite simply, birth rates are going to see to that, unless there's a fundamental change in biology, which you know is not realistic, uh, even with advancements today. So, whatever values are there are the values that better enable those people who want to have children to have them younger. Those are the societies. Those are the values that 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 will succeed. Uh, it, it's mathematical more than anything else. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, um, 20-sums, early 20-sums, getting together, getting married, having their family at that age, um, you know, committed relationship, marriage, et cetera, all very traditional. But you can see how that creates the zone for being able to achieve that. Um, there was a piece in in the doco where one woman was saying, you know, she'd love to, and, and she looked like she was in her late 30s. I could be wrong. She She wanted to have kids. But, but the husband just wanted to carry on doing his thing, you know, drinking, having a good time. Yeah. So, I mean, which side of the, uh, the gender side is, is the problem in that sense? I mean, who, who wants the freedom? Right. Uh, is it the male? Is it the female? Is it a bit of both? How does that work? Yeah, and that story um, is a very real story. If, if, if people do watch the documentary, it actually closes on a scene where she asks her husband, are they ever going to have children? And I, I'll not give it away because part two continues their personal story. Right. And she was actually age 45. She was oh, okay. Good. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So right at the end of the, uh... right at the end. Yeah. And, um, you know, the point is until I met them, uh, I met them on there, there are a couple based in Thailand, but her, her husband's Russian and they had never talked about this. She had just assumed in, in their six years of marriage that it was going to happen and the topic never came up. And that's incredible. But I find that a lot in yeah. relationships. I also I, I know personally um, a few couples who are, have either broken up or are on the point of considering breaking up because even if they're even married in one case, they've never talked about whether they want to have kids or not. And they've got the situation where one does and one doesn't. And so I think we need to be talking about this stuff. 
a lot earlier. I, I wonder why we don't, Stephen, because you'd think it'd be natural thing to bring up. I mean, otherwise, why? I mean, there are other reasons to be together, but that would be one of that would be a, quite a reason to be together yeah. and stay together. Yeah, I think this is second or third date conversation, frankly. You know, there's no point in wasting time falling for someone as, you know, if children are fundamentally important to one and not the other. And I think assumptions are made that everyone thinks the same. I think those people who don't have the desire to have children um, don't relate entirely to those who do and vice versa. Or or, or though timing, of course, is important uh, as well. Um, but you asked about men. I should go back to that very briefly to say we talk a lot about women, but men, boy, do we get it wrong too. We really get it wrong. Fertility goes down too, but of course we can have children at a much older age generally. But we forget something. We forget that we're competing effectively with our younger selves. So you can have a child 40, 50, older, sure. But you 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 need to attract a woman yeah, in late twenties through. Good luck 30. with that. Yeah, right. Well, some of us do if we're not me, but we're famous actors or super wealthy. But those are the exceptions. You know, yeah. the competition gets more and more intense for men too. So it all evens out. It's men and women really need to be talking about this. And you don't have equivalent aged women who are available because that's ended usually. So yeah. there's a complete yes. mismatch there. Yes, that's right. Uh, um. One of the scenes early on in the part one was Richard Nixon talking about cities being overrun by the year 2000. And that would have been, what, back in that year, 73, 74, around there. And it got me thinking that there seemed to be an obsession about over, well, what we could say now was an obsession about overpopulation. Where did that come from, do you think? It's a very big question. There have been schools of thought uh, for centuries, going back to what was called Malthus or Malthusianism, that the planet was going to run out of resources and that we needed to find ways to limit our numbers. And the voices of those groups have transitioned over time, but they're still there. And they're still there today. Um, so, for example, if, if you look at population organizations that happen to lead education programs around the world, that, for example, in the U.S., there's an organization that publishes data and charts on, on population matters, uh, population factors, and yet they never talk about falling birth rates. They never talk about the fact that we know that the world's population is about to peak. They only talk about ever-rising global populations. And those organizations um, have, you know, there's, I believe, 50,000 teachers trained in their data. There's three to four million students every year in the U.S. who are educated based on this data. Those voices go all the way back to, I would say, the 60s, 70s. And I, I know other people who are experts say, no, actually, this goes back to Malthus. So there is an opinion out there by some people for good reason or bad. Um, some are anti-human, um, but a lot are just, you know, people who believe the environment's more important than our personal desires. Uh, there's an agenda being pushed subtly that we should be having either fewer children 
or that children are worth sacrificing. And Nixon was caught up in that in the 70s. Um, he pretty much reversed his position quite quickly. But the voices that were around at that time are still ever present. Yeah, I mean, we still hear it connected with, you know, the climate crisis, that overpopulation is part of that problem. I remember hearing something Jordan Peterson said, uh, I caught in one of his videos talking about overpopulation, and he put it this way, well, if you limit the population, you could limit the geniuses who could fix it or mitigate against it. So be careful yeah. what you wish for. I don't know how how yeah. um, correct that is, but that I guess there's a feeling that you know the, the resources of the earth we don't we don't even know when they could be tapped out, really, do we? The, the, this is all just theory, and and we've got yeah. eight billion now, and it's still hanging together. Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert in terms of the environment, but I worry about the planet as much as the next person. Um, what I do find unusual is that we, we tend to focus on um, overly ambitious plans when practical plans, I think, are often overlooked. Um, so uh, that's, that's another topic. I, I, I just yeah. feel the, the environmental discussion is a little bit lopsided. In terms of... You know, well, wait, 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 I have heard people say that I, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, unethical to bring children into the yeah. there's a line of yeah. thinking there because of you're adding to a, a burden and yeah so we're i think that crosses the moral uh boundaries frankly um i think it's a, a a human right to be able to have a family and uh it's certainly a human right to um for a person an individual to decide how many children they want to have we should not be coercing people to have more children than they want to have. We should equally not be coercing people to have fewer children than they want to have. That's a personal choice. And when we conflate the population argument with the environment argument, I, I, I don't like to rank crises, um, but the uh, we can solve the problem of the environment no matter how many people are here. I believe so. And particularly so, even if you think that's fanciful, Particularly so, because we know that the world's population is about to peak. We know we're almost at the top, and we know that because the number of children being born peaked 20 years ago. I'm talking the total number of babies born in this planet peaked 20 years ago. And if you look at countries like where I am, Japan, and the countries in Europe I mentioned earlier, they're all now falling rapidly. And the rest of us are on the same roller coaster. You know, New Zealand's a little bit towards the back, not the very back. That would be sub-Saharan Africa. But we're all on the same path. So once you factor that in, the fact that we know we're about to peak, also older people over 65 consume much less than younger people, and we're getting older. So there's a lot of positives in terms of environmental impact, consumption impact here. Um we should never be telling people not to have children or to have fewer children. Um, you know, from the point of view of the environment, it's 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 wrong. We don't make it easy, though, do we? Uh, I guess in Western world countries, now both parents have to work really to pay mortgages and pay the bills and have any sort of standard of living, even if they have kids. I mean, just recently in our latest um, government budget, 
um, they're funding two-year-olds now into daycare. So, I mean, that's good, I suppose. It offsets costs. But what, it, to me anyway, it, the messaging is that you need to work when your kid is even younger now. And it's kind of like a handbrake or a disincentive in of itself for having children, you know, because I, I remember back when we did it and one of us sort of part of the commitment was one of us would be at home and we'd give this a good go because otherwise why would you do it? Now it seems to be the thing you do as well as your job or sort of, yeah, almost subsumed by the job in terms of hours of the yeah. day anyway. And the incentives are to, for the job rather than for creating the space and, uh, and the time for actually confidently having a family. Yeah. I think it's something we, it's not an afterthought to have a child, I believe, for most people. But it happens to be a thought that's made after everything else. You get your education. You, know, you do that first. You check that box or your training, whatever it is. Then you start your career. You need to get established. Well, getting established, that's at least five years, maybe more. And you want to get to that point and check that box where at least I'm established. So if I take time out or my partner takes time out, there's the possibility of coming back to continue that career. Um, and then you think of having a family, by which time you might be 32, 33, 35, and then the breakup happens or you haven't got a partner. Now, I, I was asked, I, I, I did a, um, well, a podcast last week, and the interviewer was 24, and he literally asked me, what, what, what should he do? <laughs> and I'm, my, my answer was, well, you've just something has to compromise. Compromise. You cannot have everything here. And you know, he went back to his, I think, his grandmother's time when uh, he, his, I guess, his parents um, had, or she, the grandmother had his parents and lived in the same house. You know, together they they couldn't afford to have their own separate house, so it's three generations living together for a few years. And then they found a way to, you know, obviously have their own place. I don't know if that's the answer for everybody, almost certainly not for everybody. But, you know, I think once people factor in this simple fact that it gets harder to have a child in your 30s for many reasons, I think people will figure out for themselves what their priorities are. And I ultimately think that that will change the educational pathways, the career pathways. I, I, I think that... The solution for this involves not so much government, not so much baby bonuses or kindergarten spaces, a little bit of that, of course, but it's more about society just figuring out for itself how can we enable younger people to have the children they want to have. Um, in the uh, part one of the doco, I think you um, had one of the European or Scandinavian countries, either Denmark or Sweden, I can't remember. They had a year paid parental leave, and, and that's coming in and great benefits, but that wasn't enough. Yeah. I mean, that's what we see globally. Benefits just, <coughs> uh, that's what we see globally. Benefits just don't make any dent in this at all. Or if they do, um, it's a pull forward effect. People have the children they were going to have anyway, a little bit sooner. And then you get birth rates, you know, going back down um, to lower levels than before. So the country was Denmark. And there's an interesting moment in the documentary where there's a campaign called Do It for Denmark. And, you know, that campaign really, you know, just summed it all up that, you know, it, you, you, you know, it, 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 you know, it summed it up in the context of here's Denmark 
a country in Scandinavia, and we think Scandinavia has got the most perfect systems for everything, free healthcare, free education, one year, as you say, paternal and maternal leave. And yet their birth rate's as low as, almost as low as Japan. So government policies really don't make any long-term dent. Um, I want to get on to the what it all means in just a moment, because that's where the, the jaw starts to drop when you realize the consequences of this. And as you're saying, we're heading for a peak, but then, then the line crashes over the top and starts plummeting. Um, medicalization of fertility. Is that an element? I mean, the pill has been around for about 50 years now and um, pregnancy termination is reasonably common. I'm not making a judgment on that, but I'm just wondering if, if this has had some sort of grand effect as well. Mm. And I have to say first, I absolutely do not ever want to involve myself in a woman's decision whether to have a child or not. That's her decision. Same, same. But I'm just thinking statistically, the numbers, you know. Yeah. Yeah. One really interesting thing in this context is Japan. So you're right. The pill was made available generally by the 70s, I guess, and a little bit earlier in the Western world. In Japan, it was illegal to take the pill until 1990. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And the only reason it was made legal here was Viagra was made available in Japan. And then women said, wait a minute, (laughs) you're allowing Viagra and you're still not allowing the pill here. Yeah. So we have this exception. Um, Like so often when you look at falling birth rates, where you compare two countries and you find completely different outcomes based on the same, you know, uh, baby bonuses or, or vice versa. You find d- different outcomes when you have the same policy. Uh, uh, in the case of Japan, abortion rates rocketed in, in the 70s and 80s until the pill became more. But do you know, I didn't know this until very recently. The proportion of women in Japan taking the pill of you know, re- reproductive age is 3%. Three. Three. Today. Now. Gee, three. Three. It's almost margin of error. It is. So Why? Um, there's, a complicated pro- yeah, no, it, it's, there's a complicated process for a woman to go meet a doctor to, to, to ask for this. But... Um, it's just not the societal norm. It was looked down upon, I think, from when it was launched. And it was only one young woman told me um, that she'd gone to an overseas kind of uh, study abroad program and all the people she met from Europe, all the young women were taking the pill and she had asked them, well, what, what is that? What is that? <laughs> yeah, is, you know, yeah. she hadn't heard. In other words, she, there's just no common knowledge of the pill, even today in Japan. It's amazing. It is amazing. Um, there's other things here as well, just, just when we're on the topic briefly, you know, epidurals for women during pregnancy are almost non-existent in Japan. Okay. So the idea of pain relief, uh, yeah, work so through it, the pain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But it, so there are differences culturally, but the, the point is, again, we have the same falling birth rates in Japan and Europe, you know, whether there's a pill or not, whether there's epidurals or not. Where you know we find the trends are the same, so I don't think that you can necessarily say. Even if just to jump to China for a moment, the famous one-child policy, 
slightly different topic, of course, but um, uh, not that different. You know, the one-child policy probably had very little overall effect in the falling birth rate in China. It would still be as low as it is today, whether they had that policy or not. Now, more babies would have been born, almost certainly. The total population would be higher, but the trend would have been identical. And we can say that because we see the same trend in Taiwan, in South Korea, in Japan, of course. The rest of the you know East Asia region uh, followed the same trend that um, China, we believe, almost certainly would have with or without. So this is a much broader thing than one-child policies than you know, availability of the pill or, or not. So it comes back to the societal norm, I think, we've created everywhere, which is deferring parenthood. That, that's really interesting because you're talking cross-cultural, cross-political, yes. Yes. Uh, um, multiple different systems, but the same core driver. The same, yeah, and the same outcome. Um, so, yeah, uh, same outcome. It's, yeah. it's kind of weird. Or something you wouldn't expect, or you wouldn't assume anyway, without digging uh, into it. Definitely not assume. Definitely not expect. Um, I, I, it's 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 quite remarkable. But I but I think the learnings out of it are are so loud and so clear um, that you know we, we we can't ignore this. And you know the great thing is I the, I think it's great is that there are going to be so few young people in the distant future already in Japan. I mean. I've been told that unless you're a, like a, a blue chip, a kind of a top global 500 company, trying to hire anybody young in Japan is impossible. You're, you're, you have to look at people over 30 because there's so few young people to hire. The young people are moving into the better companies, as, as might be seen. So there's already this huge shortage of, of workers. That gives young people power to, I think, change the system to... I don't mean rioting on streets, not at all. I mean simply choosing the companies that have got the better uh, yeah. life, you know, work-life balance to enable yeah. them to do what they want to do. That's if they wanted, though. If they wanted, that's right. If they wanted, can we get on to the consequences yeah. of this yeah. to life as we know it? Because that plummeting line on that graph, it's yeah. it's not quite a vertical drop, but it's getting close. We know there's an aging population. Taxes support their care and all the institutions and systems that we have that make our first world nations, let's hope. Is that under some sort of threat? Yes. Uh, everything's under threat. Um, so maybe I could start by saying that um, the actual total headcount of the planet isn't the important thing in this context. It's it's the change. It, going through periods of rapid population growth brings about change, but so does rapid population decline. And population decline, um, I think, is a, is a problem we haven't got our heads around yet in terms of how to cope with the transition. Now, we might imagine that I like to describe this as I imagine you're an aeroplane and you're kind of at a certain altitude and you want to glide down to a lower altitude. That, that's kind of a, a nice gliding decline. Population decline isn't like that. No, it's like a mad depressurization dive. Yeah, it's a, it's a nose dive. It, it is. And why is that the case? Well, um, well, there's a number of factors, but the biggest one is that the number of older people doesn't change initially. The number of younger people changes first. And 
for the number of workers will change first while you still have this large number of older people to support. And in most of our uh, economies today, developed economies, we have something like two thirds of all healthcare costs focused on older people. You go to a hospital, it's older people who are there. Those are the older people drawing pensions. In most of our economies, the pensions that the older people are receiving every week, every month, are coming from the workers of today. It's yeah. not their money, because when they were working, they were paying for the pensions of their parents and grandparents. It's like a pyramid scheme. <laughs> it, well, it, it is, but it's a, it's a pyramid scheme that should work if there are only a certain, a yeah. fewer number of older people. You know, of course, we can take care of our older, but until you get to a point when, when everything flips and there are not enough workers, realistically, to support them. So only two things can happen here. Um, one is that the quality of life for older people deteriorates and or the tax burden on younger people increases. I think both are going to happen. And you know, the, the, the scale of this, we're not talking of like a 5-10% increase in healthcare costs for older people or social care costs. No, we're, we're talking of vast differences, uh, doubling. It could be more. It's, it's a, on a scale that we just haven't got our heads around yet. But when we talk of consequences, well, well maybe I should just cover first that uh, the idea of shrinking societies, people might say, is a good thing. But how do you shrink a town? How do you shrink a city? It, it's not easy to do. What actually happens, I spend a lot of time in Detroit and Michigan, which is in part two of the documentary where I show that you have these streets where, well, it would have started one, two houses were left derelict, and then a quarter, then half the streets derelict. And then streets become almost entirely derelict, but there's one or two families still living there. Yeah. And you come societies where you don't have enough of a tax base to repair the roads, to keep it you know, um, lit at night, to make sure there's no vermin, et cetera, et cetera. They become scary places to live in. So... Living through this transition, societies are not going to be particularly nice, I feel, uh, in terms of just quality of life, or at least at least for, yeah, I think some towns and cities will be the places that people gravitate towards, the magnet towns that you know, young people move to that do have some vibrancy, but then older people are going to be left in these decaying towns. But what I want to cover more than anything, all of everything, all of what I've said about the consequences are overshadowed by the biggest thing, which is loneliness. And I've seen it. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, the social side, again, part two of the documentary just uh, tracks parts of Tokyo and Germany where you now have societies where everyone's old and you have people without, particularly without families where particularly women are left alone after their partner dies and you have just horrendous levels of uh, you know well let, let, let's just say depression you know the loneliness and despair yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. Hearing you talking, it sounds like there's probably going to have to be, if we choose it anyway, a reinvention almost of how we operate our societies if they're to be, well, to, to maintain some sort of quality and to be lasting in any sort of meaningful way. Is that, is that too yes. much to say? No, it's, it's entirely accurate and it will happen. We're not talking about extinction here. What will happen inevitably is some parts of our society, some subcultures will flourish. 
And they may be religious. They may be cultures that have different priorities to what we have today, because very quickly in two, three generations, you will find that those cultures that do manage to have three, four children on average grow quite rapidly. And um, those that don't will, will fade away. And, you know, those may be societies that some people don't like very much. Um, they may be societies that, you know, are oppressive to women in some way. So we have every reason right now to try and get ahead of this curve to say, wait a minute, why can't we ourselves ask ourselves today how we can simply reinvent much of our education and career pathways for, for all of us today, given that 80% of people in the most advanced countries having gone through this transition had planned 80% of people who do not have children had planned to become a parent. So it's imperative, I think, we have this conversation. You're right, that change will happen, but it's going to happen anyway, whether we like it or not. Or do we try and and reverse things? Is there any way of doing that? You're talking about, you know, baby bonuses and stuff, but and I guess, you know, supplementary income and, and maybe something approximating the average wage is probably what you'd expect here Uh for assistance. But, you know, I'm thinking of bonuses, you know, 50, 100K, you know, that would start to get people's attention. And surely in the long run, and I'm not trying to save the world here and, and, and be smart, but um, that would that would make someone stop and think, hmm, maybe, maybe I should do this. But it has to be for the right reasons, though, doesn't it? That's the thing, not just for the money. Well, I, to be honest, Paul, I, I, I don't know if it would work. Um, certain schemes have been tried with moderate success, you might say. Russia had some schemes. Um, Hungary has right now. Um, is Russia having the same issue? Is Russia in yeah. there as well? Okay. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's everywhere. It, it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Russia is actually really, it's been long-term. Uh, birth rates are, are, are not as low as Japan, but they've been below replacement levels since basically World War II. So it's really catching up on them now. But, but to your point on 100K, Let's say um, you're a young person who has gone through their entire education, maybe gone to college. That's a lot of time investment. Then you, you start a career and you want to get to a certain plateau where you think, okay, I, I've got to a point now where I'm confident enough in my future career. Um, now, along that timeline, if you were to say to a young person, male or female, okay, he's 22, here's 100K, have a child now. There's still a vulnerability to taking the 100K. There's an uncertainty as to whether that will, 100K is not going to last for, for a lifetime. What if you never get the chance to pursue your career to the same level? Um, yeah, but so, you, get, you get a child. Well, right, right. Uh, so... Uh, but I, I think there are better ways to do this, I suppose, than throwing money at this problem. Yeah, I think I'm sure there more, is. Yeah. More efficient ways. I, it, but the point is that people want to have children. And I, if there is an argument to throw money at this, and this is my own theory purely, I think it's to provide a protection against the vulnerability of having a child. I think there's, uh, particularly for women, a vulnerability of stepping out of the career path. And if it were a case that there were funds available, if it took longer than expected to, to get back in, on track with a career. And that might be, of course, maternity leave people can go back. But if there were access to loans and funds for mothers 
to en enable them to have more certainty that even if it takes longer to get back in the career path I want, that they're able to do so. That might be a better use of funds. Could you, um, and again, I'm not trying to reinvent the world here or be some sort of genius, but um, have some um, something in the way employment is operated that, and I suppose if you slot right back in where you were, that you could still perceive yourself as not having the advancement that you would have had in that time, right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a risk. And, you know, I mean, another element to this, I feel, you know, why do we all need to start our careers in our early 20s? For those people who actually just want to have a family first, well, it may not be that many, who knows? Um, but the idea of starting a career at age 30 or 35 or 25, it's possible today, but there are a lot of risks around that, you know, that you will perhaps never catch up. But if it became a norm that their recruitment drives is 20, 25, 30, 35, there's an entire cohort, you know, brought in, given that we're living longer. I mean, this is another factor that, you know, comes into the same equation, you know, we're not going to be able to retire in our certainly not 50s, 60s. No, we're going to be retiring in our 70s into our 80s. That, that's the reality for young people today. I'm sorry mm -hmm. to tell you, you're going to be working well into your 70s. So why start a career at 20? Why not? Start I think you just hit it. That, that, that sounds like the sensible solution to me because you can, you, you can tweak the culture by, pushing that message and sort of tuning things to that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that's probably, again, what mm -hmm. do I know? But that sounds like the way to do it. Well, I think just making it more flexible all, all around. And, um, you know, the, the only pushback I've ever had against that is, uh, well, you know, why would a 30-year-old want to start a career and then be on such a low salary at the start? Well, that 30-year-olds, you know, even if they've had no career, have a love life experience. I think can quite rapidly add value to, 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 to any, you know, career of any kind. So that, that's a poor reason not to do it. Um, in my yeah. views. Yeah. It's the problem. I mean, there are plenty of problems out there, but this is really the big problem of our time. I think, isn't it? I, I sort of kind of got that feeling from watching yeah. part one of your doco. <laughs> this is yeah. the elephant in the room has been lurking around unobserved because yeah. you look out there, you don't kind of notice it at the moment. It's no, that's not right. noticeable. Yes, it's invisible. And that it's invisible and also takes decades for you to find out about it, by which time it's almost too late. So it's this catch-22, and it is the the biggest crisis of our time. It will be the biggest crisis of this century. I know there's many other crises that are lurking. Um, the reason I feel this is the biggest crisis is there's no formula to reverse this. There's no solution. On the environment, I think we all know probably if the, you know if we consume less or I don't know, some people say go nuclear or there are solutions that we can look at. In the case of birth rates, there's no known solution. And that, that, that's, it's, it's a little frightening, but I'm encouraged again by the fact that talking to the younger people who watch the documentary, I've done a number of screen, screenings at colleges, younger people are shocked about this. And I can see in their eyes that they're going to, to in many cases, make decisions to prioritize family younger than they otherwise would have.
Well, that would be an achievement of uh, of your work for sure. Hey, it's been really interesting talking with you and great watch. And I'm going to watch the other two parts if I can get to them. And thank you for drawing my and now our attention, our you know little group of listeners, to this incredible problem and um, very confronting problem for humanity. That's that's what it is. So uh, thank you, Stephen, and uh, congratulations on a great piece of work. Thank you, Paul. I enjoyed the conversation. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.